There is a difference between riding a bike for casual sport and riding a bike cross country. That's an entirely different animal. The basic concepts are the same. And yet the levels of nuance, the in-depth considerations between the two are significantly different. Because beyond the fundamentals of riding a bike, the professional or, or the more serious bike rider, cross-country rider, has to consider things like the weight of the bike. I've been riding bikes for a long time. I've never really considered the weight of my bike. It doesn't really matter because I'm just going around the corner and going back home. But a serious rider has to consider the weight of the bike. Has to consider maximizing pedaling efficiency. That doesn't come up in the video. The professional rider has to consider the kinds of clothes that she will wear when she rides. The proper suspension for her bike, depending on where she's riding. The serious rider has to consider building physical stamina, how to ride in inclement weather, and the list goes on and on and on. If you want more information, talk to Mike Coleman. <laughs> the serious bike rider goes beyond the fundamentals. Their considerations are more broad in scope. Answering larger questions. Now, now, if you just want to ride a bike, you can learn that in a day. You can learn that maybe in two days. But if you want to become an endurance rider and get the most out of bike riding, you must understand and practice the finer points, the finer things. As we continue our study today in the book of Philippians, we recall that Paul has written to them to encourage them in their walk. He has written to them to commend them for their faithful consistency and to introduce them to the finer, more nuanced approaches to walking in the spirit. They already know how to ride kingdom bikes. They've been riding for some time. And now this book, Paul is introducing them to those aspects of the faith that not only will cause them to be more effective and useful in the kingdom of God, but these concepts will also broaden the context of their walk with Christ. These concepts are designed to permeate every crevice of their interior and their exterior lives. These are the finer things. Paul wants to introduce them and invite them into the deeper, the more striking horizons of the kingdom of God. And so far he's instructed them regarding kingdom-mindedness, the value of yearning for Jesus the power of letting go, the necessity of mentoring and being mentored. Paul has reminded them that effort is necessary to attain new heights in God. Humility, unity, suffering, fruitful laboring, and a sustained, comprehensive focus on the gospel message. All of those were not past sermons. These are some of the finer things of the kingdom of God. These are the concepts and the dispositions reserved not just for the casual believer, not for the casual bike rider, but for those of us who desire and require more. For those of us who want to travel beyond the small kingdom neighborhood where we've been trained, for those who want to venture out into the vast territories of the kingdom of God and of his Christ. 
So today, Paul introduces us to yet another of these finer things. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where he states, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, here's his instruction, stand firm in the Lord in this way. Stand firm in the Lord in this way. To stand firm is to demonstrate stability or to be stable. Be stable in the Lord. Be still. Be anchored, rooted, and grounded in the word and by faith. Be secured in the person of Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 15 verses 4 through 7, Jesus says this way. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, Jesus says. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and dries up, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. These are the benefits, then, of standing firm in the Lord. This text says that if we stand firm in Jesus Christ, we will be productive believers, authorized to work and to speak on Christ's behalf in the world. That's what Jesus says here. If we abide in Jesus, if we stand firm in Jesus, we will receive eternal life. That's what we believe. And then finally, if we remain in Jesus, we will ask for whatever we wish, Jesus says, and God will do it for us. This final guarantee is the most audacious of them all. It's not hard for the average believer to believe that he or she can win souls for Christ, to be an example of Christ in the world, to be productive in the world. That's not difficult to believe. It's not, it's not very difficult to believe that Christ has the power to grant us eternal life. The Bible says that God has set eternity in the heart of every man. It's not difficult to believe that for the Christian. But this final guarantee that we will ask whatever we wish and God will do whatever we ask of him. This requires a more mature kind of faith. This is not as easy to believe. The idea defies most of our experiences with God, doesn't it? This idea diminishes our need for self-realization, which renders a lot of our current endeavors less than meaningless. The ego staunchly resists this idea. You're telling me that I have worked so hard and acquired so much and all I needed to do was ask God and he would have just done it? Are you telling me that my labor has all been in vain? Yes, ego. Yes. You could have asked of him. And he could have given it to, yes. 
The ego can't bear that thought. That he is not required in order to accomplish great things. But Jesus says it. If you abide in me, you can ask whatever you will and God will do it for you. Whatever it is. If you abide in me. Therefore, Paul says then, stand firm in the Lord. Abide in the Lord. And how do we do that? Well, Paul says here, abide, stand firm in the Lord in this way. In the way that he just explained to them in previous chapter 3. Abide in the Lord by letting go of all I hold dear in exchange for a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how I abide in the Lord. Abide in the Lord by earnestly seeking and desiring to know Jesus and making that the mission of my entire life. Abide in the Lord. This is how I stand firm. I stand firm in the Lord by never becoming satisfied with what I know about Jesus Christ today, but renewing my interest and renewing my quest, quest to know him better each and every day. This is how I abide. This is how I stand firm. This is what it looks like to be resolute in the Lord. When we practice this, as Paul is admonishing us, Jesus promises that whatever we ask for, God will give it to us. If only Eudaya and Sintika would believe this, then they would find that whatever it is that they're quarreling about is in the grand scheme of things most irrelevant and a waste of their time. If only Eudaya and Sintika would believe this. Paul says, I urge you, Adiah, and I urge Sintika to live in harmony in the Lord. First, we should point out that it is impossible for two people to be in the Lord and to be out of harmony at the same time. Let me say that again. It is impossible for two people to both be in the Lord and be out of harmony at the same time. When there is any discord between two of God's children, it must be because one or both of them are not operating in the Lord as it relates to that particular subject. Because God is never in opposition with his own self. But having said that, God himself appears to be a paradox, doesn't he? He both kills and he makes alive. He both builds and he destroys. He is merciful and tender and he's also a consuming fire all at the same time, all in the same moment. And yet there is no discord in the person of God. The Lord our God is one Lord. And this is what true harmony consists of. True harmony consists of the ability of two of God's children of differing opinion and yet seeing no difference between one another. This is what harmony consists of. For two believers to have differing opinions and yet to not see any difference between one another, which is much more important. You and I and Sintinka need to get the memo that there will always be some level of disagreement between believers. That's nothing new. 
But when we both appeal to Jesus Christ, yearning to know him and living to embrace him, all our earthbound differences fade into the background. And we can still embrace one another because our objective is the same. Our objective is Jesus Christ. Nothing else. But the person who is not standing firm, the person who is not abiding in and upon Jesus Christ cannot do this. He cannot do it because he is insecure and uncertain. And he is insecure and uncertain because he cannot fathom that he can let his guard down without being mortally injured psychologically. He cannot believe that he can ask of God whatever he wishes and God will grant it to him and therefore he hides himself behind his own walls of fear, distrust, and self-defensiveness. And he cannot live in harmony with anyone who dares challenges or questions his conscience or his assumptions because he is not certain of his place in Jesus Christ. He is making no effort to know Jesus more, so he does not know his place in Christ. And so he digs down as deeply as he can into religion, consecrating his own words and opinions as being sacred. And he will go to war with anyone who takes a differing opinion or position. And this is what happens to us when we do not graduate into the finer things of the Spirit. We begin to major on the minors and to waste our time dividing ourselves and, and, and measuring ourselves among ourselves. We become nesters, homesteaders in God's kingdom, feeding on old thoughts, outdated methods, and general discontents and grievances that only impede our progress and the progress of those who look to us, all because we're not standing firm in the Lord. Paul admonishes the two of them. And Paul admonishes us today to live in harmony. Harmonious living does not require that we think the same things or process life the same way. True harmony only means that we love one another the same way, fervently. And Peter teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, that love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, when two people genuinely love one another, when two believers genuinely love one another, both of them can overlook the idiosyncrasies, the eccentricities, and the awkwardness of one another and find spiritual fulfillment and enrichment in their relationship, no matter what they disagree on. And the more they differ, the closer they become because love is willing to suffer with the person that it loves for all eternity. Love never fails. You would think at this point that Paul is talking to some immature believers. You would think that Paul is talking to some babes in Christ who are just fussing and fighting and playing games and Paul is trying to sit the children down. No, Paul is talking to mature, two mature believers. He says, indeed, true companion, 
I ask you also, help those women. So Uadiah and Sintika are women. Help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. He's talking about mature believers, those who have shared in the struggle for the faith. They're not new to the faith. They have, they have learned their spiritual, they have earned their spiritual whiskers. But yet they're still wrestling with dissension and division. Paul goes on to call them his fellow workers. He says, together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers. These are fellow workers with Christ having these disagreements. These are fellow workers of Jesus Christ who are not living in harmony. And not only are they Paul's fellow workers, he says that their names are in the book of life. These are true believers. Paul is calling them and saying, listen, you need to first of all stand firm in the faith and learn to live in harmony with one another. And so how do we do that, Paul? How do we live in harmony? How do, how do two believers who disagree vehemently about some topic, how do we learn to live in harmony? Paul says, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I'm going to give you two spiritual practices that you can engage in order to learn how to live in harmony. We've already covered the first one. Paul admonishes them in verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, every time you hear that scripture, you never hear the context of what Paul is talking about. Paul is just talking about two believers who can't seem to get along. That's the context. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord. What does that have to do with disagreeing about a particular subject, Paul? Come and be the mediator and tell us who's right and wrong. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, you heard me right, he said. Yeah, you heard me right again, I say it. Rejoice. He says it twice. And it carries the same connotation as standing firm. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your peace in the Lord. Not in your relationship with one another. Find your peace and not in being right, but find your peace in the Lord. Find your affirmation in Jesus Christ. Don't look for your affirmation or your approval from those who are around you, saved or unsaved. Rejoice in the Lord. Because of what he says about you, because of what he is doing in your life, because of his great love for you, no matter what Uadiah thinks about Sintika, no matter what Sintika thinks about Uadiah, God has accepted both of them in Jesus Christ. And it is to Jesus Christ that each of them should look in order to find safety and security. This is how, this is the only way that believers can find harmony by each of us finding our place in Jesus Christ and being satisfied with the pronouncement that he has made over our individual lives. When we do this, we'll be able to bring down the temperature of any disagreement. Because neither party, neither you, Adiah nor Sintika, neither party will sense they have anything to lose by standing down. When you're secure in Jesus Christ, if we're having a disagreement, not about sin and not sin, that's just what the Bible says, we can't go there. If we're having a disagreement about some particular thing 
that is neither here nor there. And we vehemently disagree. Paul says that if I find my security in Jesus Christ, I don't need to win the argument. I don't need to be right. I can walk away. I can find peace with you. Because what's true is, true, is going to be true whether we agree or not. What's right is going to be right whether we agree or not. I don't find my security in being right, in winning the argument. I find my security in Jesus Christ. And therefore, I have nothing to lose by standing down. Are you all with me? This is how we will achieve harmony, by each of us finding our place in Jesus Christ. And the second practice, after we rejoice in the Lord, after we find our pleasure and our joy in the Lord, the second practice that can help us foster a harmonious environment, Paul says, is gentleness. Verse five, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. Brash and angry people feel like they have something to lose. But those who trust that God is supplying all of their needs tend to be more gentle, tend to be more laid back about things, tend to be less defensive, more concerned about your comfort than about my own comfort. Paul says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. You want harmony? Be gentle. The Bible says that a soft answer turns away wrath. Sometimes Christians have to have difficult conversations with one another. Sometimes we have to lay things on the line and be completely clear as to where we stand. There's nothing wrong with that. So long as at the end of the discussion, we part ways as brother and sister, fervently in love with one another, there is nothing wrong with seeing the world through different lenses. But as I approach you with my concern, I must approach you with a gentle spirit. That soft answer will turn away wrath. What does it mean to have a gentle spirit? It means to be gracious. It means to give people the benefit of the doubt sometimes. It means to at least to believe the best about your, uh, your brothers and your sisters unless they show you otherwise. It means to not ascribe any meaning or any intentionality to anything they've said or they've done, but always to see them in the most virtuous light. It means to not be accusatory. Hmm. And here's the best definition I saw about gentleness. Gentleness is to be yielding. Gentleness is to be yielding. To know when to stand down. To know when there is nothing left to gain from pursuing a specific line of argument and to take leave of the matter without grudging and without any resentment. To know when to yield. This is not the natural way for people, for anybody. 
This requires the power of the Holy Spirit. This requires that one be filled with the Spirit. To have Jesus Christ at the center of your thoughts and as the foundation of your every word and your every deed. This requires that you rejoice in the Lord always. That you put him first always. Ahead of your emotions and ahead of your opinions. Everything that I think, everything that I feel, everything that I say, everything that I do is for the glory of Jesus Christ and not for my own glory. Be at harmony with your brothers and sisters. Be at harmony with every believer. Because Paul says that the Lord is near. This is his explanation as to why we should learn to live in harmony. The Lord is near. This explanation is both an encouragement and a warning. The Lord is near, both as mediator and also as judge. The Lord is near. The time is short. The day is breaking. And we expect Jesus Christ to come in the clouds at any moment. When Jesus Christ comes, we would like for him to find a church that is fully and completely engaged in the pursuit of his pleasure. When he comes, we would like to present to Jesus Christ and present ourselves as one person, as one body, speaking the same things, having the same spiritual disposition, embracing understanding, and treating one another as his beloved. When Jesus comes, we'd like for him to find us being conformed to his image. Harmony. One of the finer things. I close with a portion of Christ's own prayer found in John chapter 17, verse 20. This is Jesus' prayer for you and for me. He says, I am not asking on behalf of, I'm not busy trying to get my way, but I seek the way of Christ. Harmony, church. Let us all embrace harmony. Let us all adopt harmony in and among every ministry in the church. Let us pursue in us all. That we might change our focus from our own selves and our own personal needs and truly become your servants, yielding to one another when it is due and necessary. Help us to not be defensive. Help us to not be insecure but to love one another so fervently that that we're willing to be open, honest, and transparent with one another for your glory. Help us to find agreement, unity, cohesion, and harmony as we together seek your face and desire your will. In Jesus' name, amen.